inside me is almost more than I can take. Baby, when you touch me, I can feel how much you love me. It just blows me away. <coughs> I've never been this close to anyone or anything. I can hear your thoughts. I can see your dreams. I don't know how you do what you do. I'm so in love with you. It just keeps getting better. I want to spend Saxons had the victory. Viking hopes of dominating England lay trampled into the bloody soil. Hey! To share the corpses, what are you doing? One, the Black Raven. Black and Raven. The beast. The wolf. The wolf. The Oz. Never greater slaughter was there on this island. Never more folk felled before this by the sword's edges. Listen. Victory cemented England's place as the dominant nation in Britain and Ireland. The Vikings, Irish, and Scots withdrew to the periphery, and there they would remain. But had they been victorious, 
history would have been very different. If Olaf and his allies had been victorious, I think that would have shored up this Viking kingdom of Northumbria. Then it could have consolidated the power of the Vikings of Dublin in Northern England. And theoretically, the Kingdom of England in its current geographical boundaries would never have happened. Wow. Never again would the dynasty of Ivar pose the same threat to the Anglo-Saxons. In 954 AD, they withdrew from mainland Britain. So blow your mind. Blow your mind. Yeah, that's right. There's a lot of history, guys, that we've got to look at. Anglo-Saxon. The Saxons, the Anglos. Ah, making a lot of sense here, are we? Eh? You trying to make some sense here, Osment? Well, you dirty little dog. You dirty little dog. <laughs> Be bad. Mega. Descendant of Ivar and Christchurch remains one of the dynasty's greatest legacies. 
He was the first real Christian king in the Viking world in Dublin. Now his father was a Christian, but only a Christian for convenience. But his son, Silkbeard, was a real Christian, introduced Christianity to Dublin, went on a pilgrimage to Rome. Citric was the last great Viking king of Dublin. His death in 1042 marked the end of nearly 200 years in which the dynasty of Ivar had been power players. The age of the Vikings was over. Ever since, they have been remembered as savage raiders who plundered, killed and enslaved doing untold damage to society. But this is not the whole story. Now we owe an awful lot to the Vikings, completely in inverse to their numbers. We often think of them as being barbarians. They weren't barbarians. They just had a completely different view of the world to the way that we would look at it today. The Vikings shaped modern society in ways no one could have foreseen. Ivar and his descendants marched in the vanguard of this change. There is a huge catalyst that they have in terms of the development of the network of towns, in terms of the development of overseas trade, and encouraging political developments that would have quite a long-term impact. Before the Vikings came, there were no towns or cities in Ireland. Today, Many of their settlements have become large urban areas. They did set up the urban centres and they did instigate commerce on a sort of an urban scale. And that's really the model that we still have today. The interpretation of the Vikings has changed from being just a band of robbers, uh, rapists and things like that. And we have got a more nuanced view lately, watching them more as traders and society builders, as well as plumbers. And they may have contributed even more. Groundbreaking research suggests that early medieval Ireland suffered a mysterious crisis. And the Vikings may have played a role in its survival. Rowan McLaughlin and Emma Hanna are researchers at Queen's University Belfast. By compiling and analysing scientific data from archaeological sites, they seek out the big picture trend that shaped history. Archaeological sites are often just individual moments in time. What we can do is look at these over the long term by getting statistics from all these sites and modelling these data so that we can build up a continuous picture of how society evolved and how things changed from one century to the next. Most of this data came to light during the 2000s when Ireland undertook a major road construction programme. The boom in motorway construction was a wonderful opportunity to look under the earth at what sort of archaeological sites were there. Before the motorways were constructed, the planned routeways had to be archaeologically investigated and large-scale excavations took place in areas of the Irish landscape. 
thousands of sites were discovered dating to all different time periods, but especially the early medieval period. And the material from these sites allows us to build up a picture of what happened in those centuries. Using a high-tech radiocarbon accelerator, scientists analyze this material. The process is called radiocarbon dating. All living things contain carbon, and a tiny fraction of this is naturally radioactive. So when a living thing dies, this radioactivity starts to slowly decay. And what the radiocarbon accelerator does is that it measures the number of radioactive atoms left in an archaeological sample. And from that measurement, then we're able to work out how long ago that living organism lived. This method has been used to date over 10,000 radiocarbon samples from sites all over Ireland. What we can do is gather all that data together and analyze it in a way that tells us about how things changed over time. We can build up density models of the fluctuating levels of activity and use that to determine how many people were alive in the past. The calculations revealed something unexpected. The population of medieval Ireland experienced a sudden and dramatic decline. What we see is this peak, this peak at around uh, the year 700, and uh, surprisingly, it declines. Now, we would expect a society that's evolving, growing, to gradually increase in scale and increase in complexity, but this is not what the data are showing us. Instead, there's a very, very significant decline. Rowan then does a regional breakdown of the data, and this gives a clue to how Ireland survived the catastrophe. When we divide our data, we see similar patterns in the northeast and in the northwest and indeed the southwest, this overarching pattern of steady decline. In the southeast, we see something different. Uh, the decline happens later and it is not as severe as what we see elsewhere. The southeast of Ireland including Dublin, Wicklow, Wexford and Waterford, was where the greatest number of Vikings settled. The Viking influx might just have saved a population in crisis. The Vikings might have had a stabilizing effect on the decline. The average age of people is getting older and older, and so fertility rates will get lower and lower. When the Vikings arrived in Ireland, they came in, they were younger perhaps, they were certainly a lot more dynamic, and they were able to produce a real splash in Irish society at the time. And they created a long-lasting effect in Ireland in its gene pool. We can also see the long-term effects of this in the genomes of the present-day Irish population. We see a, a relatively large minor component Norwegian life ancestry in the genomes of modern day Irish people. Upper limits put this sometimes as at close to 20%. The Vikings might just have saved Ireland. And the changes they brought still echo in society, not just in Ireland and Britain, but all across Europe.
I think Vikings have made a huge contribution to European culture and you can see that in language and you can see it in artwork and you can see it in place names. The way that Viking identities and founding narratives were really developed in the sort of romantic period of the late 19th century when people were undergoing this search for, for national origins that the Vikings were built into those stories of the foundation of nations. In some way, shape or form, we are all Vikings. A divorced Hollywood actress. Mm. Very interesting. There is no doubt about that. No doubt about it. Opposed to secret societies, the secret oaths, and the secret procedures. We decided long ago that the dangers of excessive and unwarranted concealment of pertinent facts far outweigh the dangers which are cited to justify it. Even today, there is little value in opposing the threat of a closed society by imitating its arbitrary restrictions. Even today, there is little value in ensuring the survival of our nation if our traditions do not survive with it. And there is very grave danger that an announced need for increased security would be seized upon by those anxious to expand its meaning to the very limits of official censorship and concealment. That I do not intend to permit the extent that it's in my control. And no official of my administration, whether his rank is high or low, civilian or military, should interpret my words here tonight as an excuse to censor the news, to stifle dissent, to cover up our mistakes, or to withhold from the press and the public the facts they deserve to know. For we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covet means for expanding its sphere of influence, on infiltration instead of invasion, on subversion instead of election, on intimidation instead of free choice, on guerrillas by night instead of armies by day. It is a system which has conscripted vast human and material resources into the building of a tightly knit, highly efficient machine that combines military, diplomatic, intelligence, economic, scientific, and political operations. Its preparations are concealed, not published. Its mistakes are buried, not headlined. Its dissenters are silenced, not praised. Its dissenters are silenced, not praised. Its dissenters are silenced. Its dissenters are silenced. Come out of the storm. 